0: Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ashish Khanna. Today, I will be speaking with Nicholas E. Ingram, MD, on the article, Fact versus Science Fiction, Fighting Coronavirus Disease 2019 Requires the Wisdom to Know the Difference. This article was recently published in Critical Care Explorations. To access the full article's, please visit ccejournal.org. Dr. Ingram is a fellow and a part of the University of Minnesota's Department of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome, Dr. Ingram. At the outset, uh, please let me know if you have any disclosures to report. Thank you for having me. I
1: have no disclosures to report.
0: All right. Um, So, uh, Dr. Ingram... This looks like an interesting story. Um, Tell us a little bit more about what you uh, really thought about as you started writing this piece, what inspired you, what was your impetus for this very interesting piece. Obviously, the coronavirus disease was one of the reasons why you wrote this, but what is the real backstory? How does a critical care fellow end up writing a very important and crisp uh, piece of scientific literature like this?
1: Well, that's a good question. And to be honest, I think it deserves a little bit of a preface. Um, A couple of years back, uh, myself and a critical care surgeon actually started doing research together. I had, I don't know if you would say naively, um, Wandered into a few family conferences and wanted to solve the issue of trying to be able to come out of those family conferences with really good, hard evidence on what's happening with their loved ones. So I ended up doing some research with a critical care surgeon. That was a blossoming relationship, which actually turned into a research group in the end. And what was interesting about this relationship is we cross disciplines and this research group that we started after we added on a few more faculty, it really crosses anesthesia, surgery, emergency medicine, even general medicine, along with pulmonary critical care. And it's this amazing collaboration that's opened up many doors. It's broken down many different silos between departments. And without this, I don't think that there would be any way to have had the opportunities that I've had. And one of these opportunities happens to be a um, ongoing randomized uh, control trial um, with covid 19 and I preface with this because most of my research has been critical care outcomes and survivorship and so needless to say I really haven't had a large amount of experience actually I should say any experience with being a part of a randomized controlled trial but fortunately our research group, gave us the opportunity to leverage many different people's expertise and to start one. So with this, I am almost a fly on the wall for a lot of the overarching decisions if you will. So I get to see things from the trainee perspective as I'm learning and using this clinical trial as an opportunity to learn what goes into trials, learn basically the massive effort that is required and then to also do so in an expedited timing process because of the fact that everything has to move so quickly right now. So I've been part of these days where you have phone calls almost every other hour. You're getting emails from research coordinators, IDS pharmacists and project managers all hours of the night. And it's amazing and inspiring to see how much work is being put in and especially at the speed that it's being done and with the enthusiasm. So I preface with this because a lot of this is why I wanted to do this article. I'm seeing the amazing pivot that really the whole scientific community has made to be able to try and fight this invisible enemy that we have right now with coronavirus and seeing how many people are staying up all night and really not getting much credit at all kind of be demolished if there's any type of alternative facts that get out there. Because despite all of these efforts, it only takes a few missteps or a few perceived aspects of information that are incorrect for it to really undermine the whole process of what, everybody across the world is doing right now to come together as a scientific community. And so we had actually, when this article came out that we referenced as kind of a example of alternative facts and misinformation, we had written a piece about it. And I was actually challenged by one of the editors as feedback for the original submission to really look to try and figure out what I was actually trying to say. And I think he knew deep down that I was actually trying to talk more about the mission of the scientific community and he could tell that. So he actually challenged me to reformat it and take it in a different direction. So that's when I started to incorporate, well, what is misinformation and tried to put that into a context that would be applicable to our audience that, you know, critical care explorations would actually appreciate and might be actual useful information. And so That's where this all developed from because I really wanted to be able to um, find out specifically in the healthcare community where we have good intentioned people who live to serve and right now they are left without a weapon against the virus at all. So a lot of times they'll turn, they'll grab anything that may resemble anything that is a tool and it really highlighted what continues to occur over even the past few weeks and I'm worried that it'll continue to occur unless we find a voice in the scientific community to control the narrative.
0: Thanks, Nick. I, I, I guess uh, it's, a, it's a really inspiring story. I have to tell you that uh, it wasn't very uh, long ago that I was a fellow myself, and I can tell you that life as a critical care fellow is certainly busy, to say the least, I feel excited that there is individuals like yourself who are taking the time and effort to actually um, go into family meetings as a fellow, and then come out with a plan, and then come out and form a team like that, and then go on to not only just talk about an idea, but to develop it further and and actually um, make it turn it into a publication and a very relevant publication at that. Just because. Um, you know the amount of information that's out there about coronavirus disease is just um, is just overwhelming, and and I like the fact that you based your um, article on solely or mostly on the chloroquine hydroxychloroquine issue, uh, and sort of tried to highlight and tease out the evidence to make it easier for the reader to understand. Um, you know what is fact and what is fiction. Now, in your article, you write as of March 25th, there remains no randomized control trial in humans with evidence that chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine is beneficial in SARS-CoV or SARS-CoV-2. Now, today is the 21st of 20th of April as we are recording this. Um, you would say that has changed in the last few weeks, or would you still stick to that statement of yours?
1: Unfortunately, I would have to stick to it, and I say unfortunately because I also have to empathize with the human nature aspect that I talk about in the article that I want a solution as well. So let me be clear that I I would hope that there would be a change and that we would have compelling evidence that there would be something that works, So, but I will say that to date, there still is no um, compelling evidence that hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine Um, is beneficial at this point. There has been a randomized control trial of one-to-one randomization of hydroxychloroquine versus conventional therapy in 30 patients by um, June et al. And that one showed no benefit. And really the only other evidence that has come out is there was a Brazilian study that was recently published a few days ago. And this one then actually had 636 patients, and uh, 412 of them were in the hydroxychloroquine group, um, some of them with uh, azithromycin, I should say, and the 224 that were the quote-unquote control group, and this was not randomized, it was just a cohort study, those were actually patients that refused the medication, and that did show that there was... <clears throat> less hospitalizations in the treatment group. But again, this is a cohort study and the control group, if you will, were actually the patients that didn't want treatment and they actually didn't test these patients for COVID-19. And so again, I would have to say that there's really no big change. It just really uh, reinforces the fact that we need good randomized control trials to figure out the, harms, and safety, and hopefully benefits of any of these drugs or therapies.
0: So, um, Nick, I'm beginning to see a little bit of a theme with critical care trials that are being published with respect to COVID-19, and that there is a lack of good quality control groups. Is that a general theme you're identifying as well?
1: Yes, yes, it is
0: and and then <clears throat> tell me a little bit more i mean yes there is a lack of adequacy of good controls but then uh, the work from guatret and colleagues um, did it uh, did it was it all just adding to skepticism or did it add anything to to fact as well or was it all of it, it was was fiction
1: you know you bring up a great point i think one of the things that we have to be understanding of is that the studies that are being published, especially cohort studies, those are beneficial. I don't want to take away from the fact that this is not science. I mean, it definitely is. And being able to kind of guide where we put our resources is very important. And that comes from observational evidence. Really, a lot of these clinical trials are starting off – based on preclinical evidence. And again, those are also important, but I think we have to be very uh, cautious. How far do we extend that confidence? And that's where I think kind of the rubber hits the road when we talk about these studies. Ultimately, Gautret's study, I think it adds to the scientific literature and it adds evidence that there may be a role for hydroxychloroquine in COVID-19, and I don't want to downplay that by any means. The issue then becomes is, well, what happens when people inappropriately put too much weight into it? And I think that's where we had um, a concern that that's what was being done. Because if you really look at the study, you know, they... really just found patients that they treated at their hospital. They had 26 patients. They had hydroxychloroquine. They gave 200 milligrams for 10 days. The controls, if you will, were patients who either refused treatment or they took patients from another hospital to use in their data set. And from there, they were able to find that patients at six days had a higher proportion of negative viral load, which again, I think that is important for the literature. The issue is, is that when it is perceived as a much higher level of evidence than what it truly is, then we run into really big issues with everything and all the implications that came from this study where people are going out trying to get hydroxychloroquine, when really we don't have the actual evidence to say with confidence that this works.
0: Yeah, those are great points. Again, Nick, I I totally agree. I I think, um, you know, while we must continue to experiment, we continue to advance every single day with COVID-19, we we must always critically analyze literature because it's very easy to get swayed away uh, and say, well, you know, we know this works because, you know, X number of patients showed benefit. But then before we make, um, you know, sweeping recommendations or guidelines that will have a global impact, truly, really, uh, we need to be very, very, um, I won't say overcritical, but appropriately critical of literature and make sure that there is true evidence when there is true evidence. So great points there. You, you also bring up, Nick, the topic of misinformation versus disinformation in your paper Can you uh, really tell our audience how misinformation is different from disinformation?
1: Yeah, I think it comes down to intent is ultimately where you kind of delineate between the two. Misinformation is defined in the dictionary is incorrect or misleading information, whereas disinformation is false information that's deliberately conveyed and often it's covertly spread to obscure the truth. Now, the underlying motive, again, is the intent. And personally, I tend to be an outward optimist. I'm an inward pessimist. So in situations like this, I stick to the former. And so I presume that this situation, and this is where I directed the rest of the article, I presume this is misinformation. I don't want to presume there was any malicious intent um, for this to be disinformation. And so that's why I framed the rest of the article on that. And so it's important to know that there is a distinction between the two. And it really comes down to the intent of the matter and why the information is perceived incorrectly.
0: So what about something uh, you know different now? Other facts and fictions uh, with the COVID-19 situation right now, would you like to go a little bit into uh, some of those areas?
1: You know, I think this actually is a great point to bring up the moving target of information. Because even with that question being posed to me, it's actually really hard for me to even tell you what is fact and what is fiction. Because something that I could tell you at this point with the level of evidence today, it seems to be fiction that people are propagating X, Y, and Z. However, tomorrow something else could come out and it would be fact. And I think that is actually a critical aspect to what is going on in the environment right now is that we're used to trying to put things in you know, black and white. As academics very well know, there's always this gray area. However, more importantly, Every single day, that gray area actually itself moves. And that's what makes it really hard to, A, even keep up with the evidence, even from the gatekeepers of the scientific community that I think many of your listeners would attest to being. It's really hard for us to take in this information. We talk about the drinking from a fire hose in medical school. I think right now information overload is occurring on all different levels right now. And that's what makes it even hard for us to be able to really control the narrative from that aspect. But that being said, I think that right now looking to see where the general public is actually getting their information, what is swaying them, it's really important for us to temper those um, expectations or their influence if it's inappropriate. And I think that's where our role will come into. But I think trying to be able to say definitively, I know X, Y, and Z about this, this, and this topic, it's going to be hard. And I think we have to be humble about that. And I think being humble right now is the best way that we can try and maintain our trust from the
0: public. So would you say that's also the reason why we probably also need a good randomized control trial with something like the ACE inhibitors and ARBs issue and and how so much has been said in that aspect as well of the RAS pathways controlling the pathogenesis of COVID-19?
1: Yes, that's a great point. And I didn't really mention this as much in the impetus for the article, but that was also a big player in this. Our specific trial that we're doing is we're testing Losartan in COVID-19 patients. And it's been interesting to see that there's been articles that have come out that say, well, ACE2 levels may go up in patients because of RAS inhibition. And understandably, there's biological plausibility that you may be more susceptible to the virus. I mean, That makes sense biologically, But then there's also, if you look at the preclinical evidence, there's actually evidence that there could be protective. And so watching this uh, counterbalance play out in the literature has been eye-opening for me that even good scientific evidence can suggest one or two different ways. And so again, having people step back, look at the literature as a whole, and coming together and saying, you know what? This is clinical equipoise, and I think we really need to sit down and get a randomized control trial to determine what is the answer to this question. And for me, that's been kind of the guiding light and what has stemmed a lot of this interest in trying to determine how we're going to get through this pandemic with good scientific rigor. And I think it's going to be something that we can accomplish, but we have to do it strategically and and inform everybody why we're doing it the way we're doing it and set expectations for when things will come out and what they mean when they do come out.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the ACE inhibitors issue is really critical, right? I mean, um, most of the elderly population is on these agents and knowing that these agents might directly... Um, add or subtract to the uh, pathogenicity of the virus is critically important because, you know, we've seen that the elderly population are classified as a more vulnerable population with this disease. Um, So the implications of anything that you do in this area are huge, but the only way we're going to truly see something that is credible is after we do a good randomized controlled trial includes several hundreds, maybe thousands of patients, and are able to prove a point. Again, understanding that it will have implications all over the world. Correct? Absolutely. All right. So, Nick, let me just uh, talk about misinformation again. I think that's a brilliant concept. Um, uh, really, the misinformation is different from disinformation. But then, what are some? Possibilities to combat misinformation. Do we have to tell journals to be careful about what they're publishing? Or do we as readers have to be skeptical about anything that we read?
1: Yeah, I think it's a culmination of a lot of different things. You know, I think one way to approach this, before we can get to the solutions, we have to understand the challenges. And, you know, serendipitously, we actually at the University of Minnesota just had a few different lectures about mass communication. And we have a lot of experts actually in our School of Public Health. And In fact, this week during my, I'm taking classes right now for my master's, and this week happens to be health communication. And so I actually emailed one of my professors um, this Friday, and she was kind enough to direct me to some more information. I will be completely honest. I wish I would have had this information before I wrote this article, but one thing that came out of some of the research I've done between writing the article and now, and in listening to some of these experts on health communications is it really opened my eyes to how many challenges there are. And I think addressing the challenges briefly will hopefully not make this seem as something that is overwhelming and not possible to control, but I think it will help then determine the solution. So if it's okay with you, I might actually talk about some of the challenges briefly.
0: Oh, absolutely. Go on. And and specifically, you know, the social media issue seems to be really relevant, right? On the one hand, we use social media as a knowledge platform, open education, open access, availability to look at everything and anything as it's published. On the other hand, it's difficult to filter information from um, just opinion on social media.
1: Yes, and that's very, very true. And I think some of the big challenges that we have to understand what we're dealing with is that one of the things that we're going to encounter is that when we state what we think is true fact, people who do not want to believe what we are saying may call it inaccurate in itself. We may be accused of misinformation in and of ourselves if people have a different worldview. And this isn't in line with what they want to believe. There's also competing interests with other people having misinformation and disseminating that. And we also have to understand that we're doing this all during a pandemic where reality in and of of itself is not normal. We really don't have the foundation that we're used to living in, the normalcy in which we do our day-to-day activities is not here right now. So the structure is gone. And so when we're in this unfamiliar environment, this heightens our desire to find that stability. You know, And then you also take into the context that you have local news, which is usually key for especially the lay population and the general public to getting their information. And Right now, those are newspapers that are actually being affected financially by the crisis. So you take all of that into context, we have a really difficult ability to be able to disseminate the information appropriately. And that's not even getting into the social media aspect of it. On top of that, false information in and of itself usually spreads farther, faster, and deeper. We have issues with trust in journalism and in research. And so putting that together with trying to have people understand, well, what is the difficulty of science? What does it mean to actually go through this process of doing a randomized control trial? I myself am learning about this. And I've been through medical school, I've been through medicine residency, and I'm in the second year of fellowship. And so I'm still learning things. How can I expect the general public to understand the nuances of what goes into a randomized controlled trial. And then dealing with all dealing with chance. How do you explain what type one error is? Those are all things that you cannot do in a very quick news article or a conversation that you have with a loved one who has a disagreement about what's going on. And so other types of issues is the media exposure, And so one of the things that I think is really important is to understand what happens when people see conflicts and controversy. Um, This was one of the seminars that I recently watched that was put on by our School of Public Health, and they talked about this. They talked about the conflicts and controversies. And when people perceive conflict, this generates confusion, but it also undermines the trust in the recommendations that are coming from that source. And even more so, one of the biggest issues is that when they start to see this conflict or controversy, that can actually, the mistrust or the lack of confidence in that source can actually overflow into a whole different area. So a whole nother recommendation, which does, let's say, have really solid evidence behind it. And so now you have other areas that can be undermined by the fact that there may be some conflicting sources or controversy in one area. And then of course we can get into the whole thing about everything being politicized. And when people have political cues in the message, the audience themselves then puts themselves in their political framework. And then that can completely undermine any message that is coming through because people will perceive it differently. And then on top of it, how do you deal with the fact that when people are in any type of natural disaster or chaos, all they want is resolve and they want some normalcy. And to be honest, right now, with trying to find out answers with scientific rigor, we do not have a lot of great news to bestow upon everybody. And so how do you deal with the fact that most of the things that we are going to be putting out is we don't have the answer yet. And everybody is just itching and so hungry and thirsty for an answer and totally appropriately so and again it's something that we want to give them but we don't have it and we understand the limitations of science and we understand how long this takes and we understand how amazing it is that we even have all of these trials ongoing but to be able to convey that when all of a sudden we now have an audience that's just not the academic audience that we're used to, we now have the whole world focused on us. It's really hard to not disappoint almost everybody whenever we have news to give out. We can say, oh, this is promising, not evidence that we can give it to you yet. And that that makes it even harder when really all we're delivering is, hold on, we need to wait for the next study to come out. And then lastly, I already touched on overload. And I think that that's another big deal when it comes to the general public. They have the motivation to obtain the information, but the ability to process it is limited. And that's not just the general public. That's all of us. There is so much information out there that it gets very, very difficult. And then lastly is the social media aspect. And exactly to your point, I think it's very difficult to be able to control the narrative when there is so much information out there right now. And I think that's one of those issues that can be overwhelming and can almost make you wanna play possum and just not deal with it. But I think that the right answer is the exact opposite. And that we have to come at it full force as a unified scientific community and try and be the voice that we need to be Because one thing that I will say is, if you look at any polling or any studies, the scientific community and the healthcare providers still have the trust of the public. That's one thing that we need to maintain. We have rapport with our patients and we need to utilize that in the best way possible. And really adapting to how people obtain information, we need to be the ones that make that change especially in this time of crisis.
0: Yeah, great points again. I'll tell you, uh, you bring up uh, the point of the randomized control trial and what it takes to do an RCT. As someone who's done a couple now, I will tell you that it takes uh, a few years of your life, um, takes uh, a lot of family time away, and it gives you a lot of um, uh, white or gray hair in return. So, uh, you know, that, that's what it takes to do an RCT. It's not uh, as easy as just snapping your fingers together and saying, well, here we go. The results of the RCT are as follows. So yeah, I mean, the effort it takes to really um, construct good quality scientific literature is certainly no mean effort. And, and um, it, that is the whole point with your paper. It's an effort to educate not just critical care providers, but I think educate the general public as well about you know, the, the kind of effort and resources that are involved in separating fact from fiction. Again, excellent work, uh, Nick. We, we really appreciate, um, and I really enjoyed reading your paper. I am going to let you finish this off with your quote from T.S. Um, Iliot that you write in your paper. May I ask you to say that for our audience?
1: Absolutely. So I do have to say that the actual quote is, uh, we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. However, I wanted to take the actual altered quote that uh, Tim Buckman actually used in his article, Exploring the Endless Frontier. And I think he put it so well and put it in the framework of critical care and medicine in general. And it really spoke to me. And that was the first thing I thought about when I started to think about this article. And the way that he framed it was, we aim to arrive where we have started, at the bedside of the critically ill, and injured patient carrying in ways that were yesterday unimagined today unknown and will become tomorrow's standard that really spoke to me and i think it really personifies what we're going through right now and i hope it is inspiring to others
0: very well said nick i truly appreciate the opportunity uh, that I got today to speak with you. I enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure our uh, viewers will and audiences will enjoy it as well. Thanks again for your time today uh, and, and thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Ashish Khanna.
2: Ashish K. Khanna, MD, FCCP, FCCM is a Staff Intensivist and Anesthesiologist, Associate Professor of Anesthesiology, and Section Head for Research with the Department of Anesthesiology, Section on Critical Care Medicine at Wake Forest University School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, USA. Dr. Khanna is heavily involved in SCCM sections, committees, and task forces, and has received the SCCM Presidential Citation multiple times. He has written more than 80 peer-reviewed articles and two dozen book chapters, as well as editorials, non-peer-reviewed articles, and online educational videos. He has been invited to talk about his work at prestigious national and international forums. His research interests include prediction of postoperative respiratory and cardiac events on the wards, outcomes of hypotension in critically ill patients, and use of novel vasopressors in shock states in the ICU. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership. For more information, the Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants, and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.